Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Finally, 2018 arrives and it is time at last to talk about the psychedelic action horror, Mandy. What could be easier to see? Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to episode 82 of Cage Rage, a Nicholas Cage podcast. It's the podcast in which I, your humble hosting guy, Daryl Edge, take you, the listener, on the journey to true Cage Nirvana. What is that, you ask? Well, it is only the highest, most purest, most emotional, most real, spiritual, sexual, physical, everything you'll form of being possible. How do you achieve that, you ask? Well, there's only one way to do it, and that is by watching every single film the man I call the golden hog of Hollywood, Nicholas Cage, has ever been in. Hope you're well. Hope you've had a good week. Um, we've got a big episode this week. Uh, Tom Broom Jones returns on the journey this week, making his third appearance on the podcast. You may remember he joined me previously to talk about Con Air and Adaptation. Uh, this one had been a long time coming, and uh, we we really leave no stone unturned in covering Mandy. We both talk about our experiences with this film. Uh, we could do a much a very big deep dive into it as well. We talk about Cage's uh, in some aspects return to form performance with this one, the possible video game influences, Cheddar Goblin, Hogs. And of course, fuck pig, um, as well as many, many other things as well. Uh, this is a meaty episode. It's a big one. So we'll jump right into it. As ever, if you enjoyed the podcast, please do give it a rating on the forum service of choice wherever you're listening be that spotify apple Podchaser, or others really helps the podcast grow you can find me on social media as well i'm on twitter at cage underscore podcast amongst others all the links in the description but here we go episode 82 it's mandy with that alleged tom broom jones enjoy so 2018 kicks off in Big style this week as we take a look at the psychedelic horror action film Mandy. This week, Cage plays Red Miller, a logger whose idyllic life with his partner, Mandy, is shattered by a strange cult leading him down a path of bloody, bloody revenge. Now, my guest has previously helped me both land the jailbird and scribe the book on flowers and returning on the journey to true Cage Nirvana this week is media journalist, film critic and friend of the podcast. One of the best eggs you can ask for, Tom Broom-Jones. Tom, how are you doing? Hello. Hello. I'm back. Three times. Three times. The first two-time guest. I don't... Am I the first, the first three-time guest? Or did someone... someone uh, I think you were pipped to the three-time, but I do think... Because I've been doing this podcast since 2020. You were the first person to appear in three consecutive years. In 2021 and 22. Wow. So, oh, and given the rate that Nick Ketch makes movies, this podcast will never die. So, I yeah. Know, so you'll, be back <laughs> um, in tw- you'll be back in 23 at this rate. 
I'm doing I'm doing all right. I've got a uh, have to forgive the sound of my throat. I had COVID over Christmas. That was that was rubbish. Uh, I was yeah. My breathing is still a bit wink wonk. So I suppose my number one piece of advice to people would be: don't get COVID. It's bad for you. Hot take: don't get COVID. <laughs> It's not good. Yeah, got a got a little bit of the old roan myself over uh, Christmas as well. So I'm anyone with anyone with headphones on right now. I I hope you like hearing people clear their throats. <laughs> um, there might be a lot of it. I mean, forgive us, but this is these are the times in the world that we are living in. And at the point of recording as well, I've got my booster tomorrow, so that's going to be. Ooh. So that's going to be fun. A little trek, get the old booster. And then fortunately, uh, the Golden Hog has provided and the Tuesday off at work. So a day of recovery. Bless us be the Golden Hog. And may his yeah, Golden Hog here. bless us all. We're going, we're going hog to hog. Let's do it, baby. Head to head, hog to hog. And wouldn't have it any other way in this pig pen that I call a podcast. So... Uh, as Tom is well aware, and for listeners, we always, you know, kick these things off by talking about Nicolas Cage, and um, this is something I was sort of thinking about the other day, as I think, you know, we're at the start of the year, and 2022 um, looks to be an interesting year for Nicolas Cage, um, in similar fashion to how 2018 was uh, an interesting year that kicked off with Mandy of all films, and was in many ways... Um, a film that put Nicolas Cage back on, not the, maybe not the biggest map, but a certain uh, definitely a horror map, and had got a lot of people talking again. Um, so for you, Tom, Mandy, uh, I think you know this this recording really has been one that's been gestating for a long time. It's been a long time coming, but for Mandy, um, is this one that you have seen uh, prior to recording today? Yeah, I was first made aware of Mandy. I think my cousin recommended it to me because he's a big fan of, of the Golden Hog as well. Mm-hmm. And I remember this film came out around that time where Cage was transitioning from I guess I don't want to say faded movie star because that sounds really bad. But he did sort of get into that habit of doing the director DVD uh, swill I suppose that Bruce Willis is now in but unlike Bruce Willis he saw that his career needed a shot in the arm and he reinvented himself and that's he's the Madonna of acting he reinvents himself all the time he's got so many different eras so many different looks so many different approaches and he can lend himself to any genre which we've talked about in the past he's unbelievably versatile. In sports, you'd call him a five-tool player. He's the guy that you can get. He's there. He can do anything you need him to do. And Mandy was a statement. It was him saying, this is happening. I'm committing to lending my my name power to these smaller, quirkier, off-the-beaten-path genre films. He was also in I don't really know at the time. Like he's, he does so many films that I lose track of what comes out when. But uh, Mum and Dad, I think, was also a similar sort. Of, have you done Mum and Dad on the podcast yet? Uh, it, by the time this comes out, Mum uh, and Dad will have been released. Um, okay, there you go. 
chronologically, yeah, so Mum and Dad yeah. was just before Mandy. Yeah, so it was that, what, 20, 2018, right? We're talking here. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that was the year. He was just featuring in these films that recognised his unique acting style and how to tap into it. And Mum and Dad's, I don't think, is his best film, but it's one of those films that you watch and you're like, yeah, only Nicolas Cage could have could have done this. And Mandy is, is a very similar situation. You watch it and you think, I can't picture any other actor in this role. He, this was the role he was born to play. And I know it's a cliche because he's, he's irreplaceable in everything he does, obviously. But I genuinely... I, I love a lot of actors. Nicolas Cage isn't even my favourite actor. My favourite actor is actually Edward Norton. But Edward Norton, if you put him in Mandy, wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. <laughs> it, it would be dreadful. So it's... Cage has just... He's got a je ne sais quoi. He's got a certain something that no other actor has. And I think... I think it's good that we're doing Mandy because I think with my appearances on the podcast, we've covered all the different kind of cage fare that you can get. We had Con Air, big, bombastic, blockbuster action picture that's great. You've got Adaptation, which is more of a prestige awards type of movie, an Oscar type of movie, where he's getting to flex his comedy chops. And then you've got Mandy, which is more of a, a genre picture where he can really let loose and embrace the the full intenseness intensity i should say and insanity of what he does which is a shamanic nouveau which i think is the best name of an acting style ever and boy mandy sometimes feels like someone just gave nicholas cage a camcorder and just said yeah just just go for it just just document yourself for a bit we'll see what happens and then he had a very very bad day it's almost like this was uh, Nicolas Cage's answer to Inside before Inside was even a, even a thing. Um, <laughs> Nicolas Cage, the architect of... Uh, how, how good would Bo Burnham and Nicolas Cage be together? That's something I'd like to see. This is, uh, to, to a quick plug, the, uh, the podcast nobody asked for. When I guested on their podcast, we were talking about... Um, uh, the sort of roles we'd like to see Nicolas Cage in, and one of them suggested was, oh, if Nicolas Cage did Inside, um, because just the the infinite possibility of Nicolas Cage, as you say, with a camcorder just in his own home, um, the things that could happen, it'd probably just be him talking to his various menagerie of pets of different names and looking around what antiques and collectibles that he still has. Um, but I th- I think... It's uh, It would be a very interesting idea, as this is a very interesting film. And as far as you said there, but with uh, yourself on the podcast, covered Cage from the 90s, the noughties, the 10s. Um, so still another record for you there, a, a decade of, three decades of films effectively. But I think this yeah, is, no. I think as you said, like Mandy, very much a film that also encapsulates this new error of Cage that we go into for 2018. I mean, it's not to say that 2018 is without its um, iffiness. Obviously, we get, you know, Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse, Teen Titans go to the movies, are still knocking about in there, but we also get films like 211, one of the few films that is actually disowned um, 
before before we start moving how, into how bad does something have to be for Nicolas Cage to disown it? He's he's got some stinkers under his under his belt. I mean, you can't have the uh, the golden hinds without the hogged lows, um, and that is the journey. It's all it's all about uh, going through these moments of life, the highs and the lows, to get to the uh, the golden sunset that we wait for here, but. I think Mandy was definitely a conversation starter, one that's... I think, like I say, it reignited a passion for him in, I think, as he said in interviews before, why he really sort of fell in love with cinema. When you look at some of his earliest works, when it was a more independent fair, sort of prior to um, prior to the 90s, prior to even things like uh, Moonstruck and Raising Arizona, when he was doing things like uh, Birdie and the Cotton Club, way back when these sort of independent fairs are what he really enjoys um fast well, times at Ridgemont high as well fast times um i think what else have we got down there we've got a valley girl of course rumble fish um peggy sue got married um before there's just a sudden jump to slightly slightly more action stuff in the 90s and then as you said i think it what I'd, you know um 80-something episodes into the podcast at that point, and finally, the Madonna of acting. What a brilliant description. The Madonna of acting and the Chris Jericho of acting, if you will. Um, a man of many, many guises, many styles. And I think um, I think we're at a point now where, I, maybe not everyone, but a lot of people, when you sort of ask them, oh, what's, he sort of, what's in your top cage? A lot of people are talking about Mandy. This is the one that more and more so as the years have gone by, more people are discovering this. Um, and I think it's only a good thing because, uh, you know, and as, as we'll get into, as we've got into before, there's just no... I struggle to think of many films like this again. I don't claim to have seen every movie. I don't claim to be the biggest film buff in the world. I'm just a man who believes Nicolas Cage is the greatest actor of our generation. But Mandy is just... It's such a weird film to describe if you haven't seen it. Um, I mean, to, to to throw up a hot potato your way, um, how if someone hadn't seen Mandy, how would you even begin about d- describing what this film is to someone who was going in blind to this? Okay, well, at first I'd describe it as... You know that feeling you get when you close your eyes really hard and then rub them really hard and then open them and everything's like got a weird purple haze on it. That's <laughs> what the film looks like. <laughs> I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd say that straight away. The whole film, just imagine that you've just woken up and everything's weird and spotty. That's the film's colour palette, I suppose. Mm. That would be my starter. Secondly, oh, goodness just imagine the worst trip imaginable and then while that's going on you have to battle a group of demons with a battle axe and that 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 would be it that's what more can you say it's hard to describe bandy without likening it to other films i suppose maybe a bit of gaspar no like enter the void or something more of a more of a trippy film it's got a real it's obviously an american film but it's got a european art house feel to it i think the director can never remember the director's name i believe he's greek or greek descent 
Palos Cosmatos. Yeah, he made what was it? Beyond the Black Rainbow. Was that his his first film, I think. Yes, indeed. Beyond the uh, Black Rainbow before this, and then years his later. Father, his father is quite an influential art house director. I know that. I, I don't proclaim to have seen any of his films, but he's someone who really grew up in the industry and presumably from a young age watched quite a lot of unique films, maybe not the kind of films we would have grown up on. And I think that might have informed his his style as a director because Mandy has... It's an interesting one because it is a psychedelic action horror film, which is what it's officially described as. But it's also... It's quite a beautiful film as well. It's a moving love story as well, I think. It's a tragedy. It's a it's a like a Shakespearean tragedy. It's there are moments in it that really genuinely Cage is doing some incredible work in this one. There are moments that make you want to cry, that move you. And then there are other moments that just make you go, Oh my god, what the what the hell is going on here? So it it's a film of extreme emotional responses. And it's the kind of film that if you go into it and you have no idea what you're in for, you're either going to have your mind blown or at the end of it, you're going to be like, well, I feel like I was just violated. Why would mm-hmm. you show me this? <laughs> I can easily see both reactions. Oh, yeah. It's a film that will shock, possibly offend, mesmerize. And it's a film that invites conversation because there's so much ambiguity to a lot of what goes on. There's a lot of stuff that's unexplained. Is it a fantasy? Is it reality? What world does it take in, take place in? Does any of the stuff we see even happen or is it all just one horrific drugs trip? I mean, there's so many questions left open with this film that, that it's, it invites rewatches and it invites discussion, I think. I mean, exactly that. It's um, it, it's a film that has to, I mean, not to, you know, try and um, oversell the film too much, but it is really a film that has to be seen to be believed. It's about, I think, around about two hours, but it just flies by. And then with the, the colour palette between that and the score and um, everything that's just happening. And as you said, it is in part a love story, is in part a tragedy, is in part a tale of revenge um, and it's just it's um, in part as moving as it can be disturbing as well, it's such a, a, a an odd film to categorise um, and even though I, I, you know, I do my intros at the start to sort of lead you into sort of how we see Cage in this even that really doesn't tell you much, if anything, um, about what happens here. There are parts of animation, there are tigers, there are chainsaw battles in this. Uh, Bill Duke rocks up, um, there is Cage screaming in his underwear and his tighty whiteies. Um, and there's um, everything else you could you could ask for. And as we were... Um, discussing briefly before we start recording it's the third time watching this for me i remember watching this towards the start when i was doing the podcast and the first time i watched it on blu-ray i remember thinking like how do, how how do you talk about a film like this like what how do you even begin to sort of um entertain this 
in um and then the second time as i was saying to you as well um I went to a Nicolas Cage movie marathon at the Prince Charles Cinema in London and that was um a marathon that started with the rock followed by Conair, then Face Off, then Drive Angry. This started at 9pm and then the final film at just around about 7am was Mandy. And let me tell you, there are some films that should and should not be watched at 7am um, following four Nicolas Cage films <laughs> directly before those. And let me tell you, um, I felt like I was on uh black skull levels of LSD and cocaine and then when you come out of that cinema and it's just it's nine in the morning and it's bright and there's no one else along um that you can see as far as like for miles then you kind of think that you maybe you've been indoctrinated into a cult or something because you don't feel right and it, even just rewatching this just normally in the house the other day this is a film that um and it's certainly for me, at least. It, it, and as you touched upon as well, the, all the the ambiguity in the film and just the way the the, edit, the editing and the colours and the composition of the film and uh, everything it tackles, it's something that sticks with you because this is one of... Um, it's a few... It's just films for me that I always find I'm thinking about it for sort of days afterwards. Um, have you found in your first watch and subsequent re-watches that this is a film that even now maybe you're still thinking about or for better or worse. I probably think about this film at least three or four times a week. <laughs> just just intrusive thoughts. It just comes into my head. I'm just there like, you remember that guy with the sword for a penis? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I always forget about that. It's like every time I was like... There's nothing to prepare you for that. Oh, just do you remember? That do you remember that blade. Giant, yeah, do you remember that giant hornet that was used to inject venom into someone's neck? And how gross that was! It, All the it's, time. It's got elements of Cronenberg to it. It's it's definitely got kind of a body horror thing going on. It's got elements, as I mentioned earlier. It kind of reminds me a bit of Gaspar Noe's stuff, especially Enter the Void, just with the whole drugs trip angle of it. And it also has a real exploitation vibe to it. And I think that's possibly what drew Cage to it, was that 80s exploitation film. It's his opportunity to be in an exploitation film, but in the modern day with, with modern special effects and modern filmmaking techniques. And as an actor, I think exploitative is probably the best way to describe his acting style. He's... <laughs> He's go big or go home. There's no in-between with Nicolas Cage. And no. Mandy, it just feels tailor-made. It's the kind of film where you know the director wrote it, looked at the scripts and thought, yeah, it's Cage. Got to be Cage. There's no, no one else. And he championed this film. And yeah. I remember when it came out, he was at every bloody film festival all of them. He was showing up at every horror film festival, some unannounced, and he was promoting the shit out of Mandy. I mean, he was fully behind this film. This wasn't one of those, right, let's do this film so I can offset some of my debt for buying a T-Rex school project. This was a, I want to do this because this is 
bloody great and it's going to make my my career it's a good career move it's going to rejuvenate my career and it did you know Matthew, Matthew McConaughey had the reconnaissance where he started appearing in a lot of prestige pictures and it culminated in him winning the Oscar but with Cage he's already done that he's already done the prestige pictures he's already won the Oscar so his renaissance wasn't that. His renaissance was, let's get really weird with it. It's like uh, Frank Reynolds in Always Sunny Philadelphia. I don't know how long <laughs> I've got left, so I'm going to get real weird with it. <laughs> That's the approach. The Frank Reynolds approach to acting, um, embodied by one Nicolas Cage, um, which I'd... I, I, I just love the idea that that's the inspiration that he might have taken for this Um it's a very true point, though, that, um, and as, as we sort of briefly touched upon earlier as well, pre recording, is that you just go to YouTube and you put in uh, Nicolas Cage Mandy or Nicolas Cage Mandy interview, something on those lines, and you will find so many clips and interviews and QAs that Cage did for this. And at this point, is it in his career? And, you know, obviously, if we touched upon, you know, we're. Um, slowly, slowly coming out. We can see a light in the distance of him slowly emerging from the straight-to-DVD era of Cage here. The 2010s have been a decade, you know, let's put it that way for better or worse, but struggled to think of many films preceding this that he went as heavy in on with the promotion as this. Some films you might scour the internet, find an interview on a website or two, you might find a video interview or two, but like you say, he was heavy on this one, he was talking about it openly, you can tell this was a project he believed in, this was something he was very passionate about and I guess from a, from a bias perspective, it was very fun to see him um, clearly enjoy acting again and I think in some ways, I think Mandy must have sparked that or reignited that passion, certainly for independent filmmaking, which he's certainly not shied away from since. Obviously, we look at Pig in 2021, another film that's put Cage very much back on the vocal talking point of cinema. Um, and he's probably not going to be nominated for an Oscar, which is bollocks. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know a damn thing of Hollywood <laughs> wigs. Ooh, let's nominate, I don't know, who even is the well, let's nominate Will Smith for King Richard because he's Will Smith and it's a biopic about Serena Williams. Uh, and it's like, well, you could do that, or you could nominate John Wick with a pig. Yeah, well, there we go. I mean, I think by the time the episode this comes out, the Oscars may have been or the, the shortlist that may have been revealed at that point anyway, but. I think, given the way things have gone at the start of the year, um, with the uh, the Screen Actors Guild and the BAFTAs as well, uh, Cage and Pig nowhere in sight on the long lists, um, which is something I, you know, we can talk about Cage's award snubs, and so we're both blue in the face here. But I feared that this would happen. I had a suspicion that this would be the case um, that there would be a circa 2013 Joe level snub on this one. And the prophecy is true. The prophecy is real. So it's, it's, it still hurts. 
it still hurts, even though I'm trying to make my peace with it. But hey, at least, you know, Jared Leto got the SAG nomination for supporting actor, so it's not. Because yeah, Lord knows Jared Leto needed another another one. Hey, he's doing an accent, so that's fun. He's he's doing an accent and He's got a point, fat suit on, all you need. He's got a little fat suit on, and at the point of recording, we may never have Morbius released. Um, I don't think it's a real film. <laughs> I'm yet to see. I'm yet to see proof it's real. I mean, I've seen what some have claimed to be a trailer, but you know, anyone can anyone can knock up a, a quote unquote trailer these days. And if you're pushing your again air quotes film. Back by I'm keep air quoting here months. This is what at the point recorded what the seventh time that Morbius has been. And Morbius is a weird character to focus on. Morbius is you know I could be wrong. I've not you know been massively in touch with comics and graphic novels and stuff for a little while. But the last I remembered, Morbius was not a central character. So that'll be. Interesting if that film that definitely doesn't exist ever gets released, which it won't because it doesn't exist, and neither does Jared Leto. He's a product of the man, um, <laughs> not like Nicolas Cage, who's a product of the people. People's so, champion. Nicolas Cage is the people's champion. Hashtag Jared Leto is fake. If we can get that trending, um, I so will last, deal with a lie. Last time I was on the podcast, we we determined that Daniel Day Lewis was a terrible actor. And now we're going after Jared Leto. We're making a lot of powerful enemies here, Daryl. But it's okay because I don't think they know we exist or will ever know we exist. So we're safe. We're it's... safe in our little bunker. Listen, I I live on a tiny hill with a tiny flag, and this is where I will die, um, proud and ignorant to <laughs> to the I'm very. Sort of, I'm sort of halfway up the hill, ready to bolt just in case trouble shows. <laughs> You're, you're, you're keeping lookout with uh, one leg on the horse stirrup ready to ride off, which I don't I don't resent you for doing. I'd do the same if I was in your position. Um, so uh, God bless you for it as well. But I, I suppose looking, looking at the film here, uh, you know, this is, this is set in the 80s, 83. Um, and I suppose we get uh, the title cards, which give us the little sections of the film, and we don't get the actual title them. card for Mandy till... Well over well, an hour into the film. Yeah, it's pro- it's possibly the latest. I was thinking about this the other day. Is it the latest title card ever in a film? So I was thinking of. I don't even remember the Friday the Thirteenth remake from two thousand nine. That has like a really long, long opening that you just think is the movie, and then everyone in the opening is killed, and then the title card plays, and you're like, oh, it's been like twenty minutes. I thought the <laughs> film was going. But no, apparently that was a prologue. But Mandy just blows it out of the water. <laughs> yeah. Good, good um, halfway mark of the film, and you get the title card. I love them. I love the little animated title cards. I think they're great. Well, it's gorgeous. I, mean, I think with that, with the title card being so late into the film, I think Paus Cosmatos just said, hold my beer on that one. And like, you call that a late title card? Um but we, you know, we we kick off with uh, "Starless" by King Crimson. We get the opening uh, text on the screen, um, like this, um, almost like eulogy. When I die, bury me deep. Lay two speakers at my feet. Wrap some headphones around my head and rock and roll me until I'm dead. Plot of the film, basically. I mean, in many ways, it's it's kind of 
it's kind of the film is like this is about this is about to get rock rock and yeah. or roll everyone. And then obviously the film kicks off quietly enough. I see Red Miller is just a humble blogger. Um, there are hints later on in the film when we meet Bill Duke that he may have served at some point um, in the military. Hence some of his proficiency with a crossbow and because reasons close to close hand combat with a giant metal axe that he knows how to forge that listen up listener there are things in this film you just cannot question because you will not find the answers and then you'll end up on a podcast like me and tom talking about it there's hints with mandy as well and i suppose here you know before we get into i guess parts of the mandy arc um andrea risborough as well um what a wonderful performance in this as well i think yeah Almost over, not overshadowed by Cage himself, but more. All anyone could talk about with this film was how great Cage was and how this was the perfect comeback vehicle. But all round, there's some brilliant performances in this film. I think as an ensemble piece, no one is, uh, no one is underperforming. Everyone's pulling their weight. And yeah, like yeah. Mandy herself, the character of Mandy, the title character, in many ways, I'd say probably the most important character. She her her existence is what thrusts the narrative into motion. Um, again, with yeah, the ambiguity. There's a lot there. The way they, the Red and and Mandy interact with each other. There's. You can tell that they love each other, but there is this stilted disconnect almost. There is a, a fragility there that, you know, Mandy herself maybe is quite, not weak, but but vulnerable. And that Red is, they're two very different people. Mandy is an artist. She creates these gorgeous uh, Lovecraftian almost illustrations of, cosmic horror and cosmic horror is obviously a huge influence on the film and then red you know he's a lumberjack he's dressed like mick foley he's he's just he spends every day just looking like absolute shit but by the end of the day oh Oh, that was horrible right back to it and yeah possibly an ex-veteran he has no qualms about killing people he's very good at killing people um as will later on be possibly very, very definitely an alcoholic or some kind of substance abuser. And substance abuse is actually quite a prevalent theme in this film, uh, particularly how it informs the decisions of the villains and of the protagonist. So, yeah, I, I think I, I agree with you that her performance is great and there is a tenderness there and she offsets a lot of the rugged masculinity of Nicolas Cage and I like it when Cage is vulnerable because he's very good at it. And I love, it's the calm before the storm. You know everything's about to kick off. But, you know, she's running. They've got a little shop that sells knickknacks. And um, she's working at that shop. And then they live in a cabin and she just likes to draw. And they like to look at the stars and, and talk. And it's it's such a beautiful, simple existence. And I wouldn't have minded a whole film just of that, to be honest. Just a yeah. nice film where nothing happens and they just hang about in the wind for two hours. I'd be happy with that. 
but we can't have nice things. Not not in Panos Cosmatos's world, we cannot have nice things. Um, I think I think it's a very interesting dynamic the relationship. Um, because as, as you said, I think um, you know it's a great ensemble piece. There's no question about that, and it is very much a film where it's um, it, it's man with Mandy, and then it's post Mandy, and then post Mandy. Obviously, as we will get into, it becomes um, not in, not film, in, oh, a different film. It's like not entirely, but majoritively, it becomes the Nicolas Cage show. Um, but but I. I I find it so intriguing the way that Mandy is framed in this as almost, as you said, that there is a fragility there. There is a vulnerable, vulnerable, the V word there. Um, but there's, there's certain ways that Mandy is framed as well, like almost otherworldly. Um, there's like this an scene, angel. Yeah, almost like an, like angel. an angel. It's, it's reverent. It's very much like, I think, as. Um, Jeremiah Sand will probably would try to tell you that, um, you know, a higher power has called to me, and I've got to have, I've got to have this woman. But there's a scene where they're by quite early in the film, where they're by a campfire, and um, Mandy sort of emerges from the lake, and you see her through the flames, and it lingers on that shot for a while, and I find it just a very interesting shot, and I suppose there's, uh, I guess, use of fire throughout this as well, but. That like there may be something we don't quite know about Mandy, and I suppose on that real line of thought as well. I suppose, as you said, the fragility of it all. There was um, again going back to the interviews. There was one with uh, Cage Linus Roach, who plays Jeremiah Sand and Panos Cosmatos, and Panos was talking about something that he called the tyranny of perfection, where so many filmmakers have to have everything completely perfect, otherwise there's no point in displaying the film. But he says he likes to have the rougher edges around the film because he thinks there's there's kind of a beauty in there. And I think in many respects it comes through on this because, um, like I said, this is a film that, and I'm sure pre-production when people were reading the script for this and thinking, what the hell am I reading here? In, and then you bring it to the actual production. And then watching the film, it's one of these things that it feels like it could fall apart at any moment um, and that this could just go off the rails but not in the sense that it does um, would you would you say there was anything anything about this so that it it almost feels the, the film itself feels fragile um, or am I just tripping on LSD here <laughs> it's that tipping point isn't it it's everything on the surface seems idyllic but all it takes is one tiny little push and everything falls apart. All it takes is one tiny event. And the inciting incident, obviously, is Mandy is just, uh, I think she's on her way home. She's walking to the cabin. And we're introduced to the villains of the piece, the, the children of the New Dawn. Uh, I know you said children of Eden then, so... <laughs> I've just been, I'm currently playing Far Cry 5 again. So I'm kind of hillbilly cult deep right now. And in my head, I've just kind of like conflated the two. It's like, so if I call Jeremiah Sand Joseph Seed at any point during this podcast, uh, I'm not an idiot. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> mixing up two forms of media. But yeah, the children of the New Dawn are in, they're a, a backwards hippie cult 
uh, driving along. They're led by uh, a failed musician, Jeremiah Sand, who is definitely not Charles Manson. <laughs> definitely not. Uh, uh, no, no similarities at all. And this is a beautiful, beautiful moment. Well, horrifying, but beautiful in its execution where they drive past her and everything kind of slows down and the music swells up and Jeremiah Sand sees Mandy. And like you said, the idea of her being this angelic presence, he's, he's drawn to her. There's something there that, that makes him obsess over her. And that's where it all goes wrong because, because of that one singular event, this nightmare of a film is unleashed upon us. Had that not happened, had she gone home at a different time, had they not been driving up the road at that point, everything would probably be fine. But it's, oh, shit is about to get real. And the the humdrum, simple life that, that Mandy and Red have carved out for themselves is, I mean, this film takes a hard left turn at the traffic lights. <laughs> There's no two ways about it. After this moment, uh, you you have this. There's a constant sense of dread throughout the entire thing. You just know that something's coming. You know it's not going to be good, and you're aware of the inevitability. You know there's no way out of it. That this does not have a happy ending in any scenario, and it's it's unfair. But at the same time, that's that's horror, baby. <laughs> that's that's what yeah. horror films are all about. We uh, we don't come to horror for people to get uh, an, an equal shot at the uh, at the title belt to ham, ham fist a uh, analogy in there. Yeah, you've got you Vince McMahon there with the microphone stacking all the odds against them. Vince McMahon, that, he'd make a great villain. Do you imagine Vince McMahon in Mandy? Vince McMandy? <laughs> Vince McMandy. Vince That's... McMandy. That's we have to stop film. with the wrestling references because <laughs> they're going to alienate a lot of people. We, this happened last time. There's a good we chance just it happens. Wrestling references and have to stop. A good chance this keeps happening. Um, but like I say, the chance encounter of the court driving past Mandy, Jeremiah Sand and Mandy Lakai's, there's the red filter on the screen as well. And Mandy's sort of half off screen and it, it, it like freezes on that look that she gives Jeremiah. And then the next. Scene after this, after the title card, Children of the New Dawn, it's it's Jeremiah who is, as I said, the leader of this strange hippie cult, but he's just in bed and he's moping. It's childish, it's uh, infantile. Um, and really with Jeremiah, he is a textbook narcissist. He's an egomaniac. He's... And obviously, massive credit to the portrayal from Linus Roach here, who... Oh, he's brilliant. I just want to um, put this guy in face. <laughs> he he makes Jeremiah so like skin crawling and also captivating as well. Like you you can't take your eyes off him, and you can sort of see in a way why he's cultivated the cult um, that he that he has there. But he's just kicking off, saying like, "Oh God, I have that woman. You've got to get her to me." And he's um, berating. Uh, Mother Marlene, he's getting uh, Brother Swan to go out and get her. Um, I think it's implied that he might use 
sister Lucy, who's the only, I think the only silent character, with the exception of some of the black skulls in the film that he uses for sex, really. And oh, a thousand percent. I mean, there's no, there's no way he doesn't abuse her. Uh, no way it's at all. An awful person. Um, and he, and as we'll discuss, he only gets more awful. Um, oh, and this God. this is when some more of the the fantastical elements of the movie start coming through, and the him and um, I think his brother Swan are saying like, "Oh, we're going to get, we're going to use the horn of a Braxis. We're going to offer up the porker to seal the deal." And it's this uh, weird mystical, like almost stone ocarina. Which... Yeah, it is. It's an ocarina. <laughs> but, it's, but it's not going to play a pretty tune and mess with time. It's not It's, it's not, not your Zelda ocarina. <laughs> it's not your Zelda Link-style uh, cute, delightful ocarina. Let's say that much. It's uh, When you play it, it summons uh, leather-clad biker demons and, green, <laughs> and then green lights flash. Um and I suppose, you know, to sort of sidetrack on, I guess, the use of lighting here, it's when there's mythical stuff like this and the green light flashes. Um, I think green's not used very often in the film. It flashes on the horn of Abraxas. And then there's a scene right at the end of the film where you have that sort of um, red miller flashback to him meeting Mandy in that bar. And then she has, like, I think half of her face is lit up in green as well. So I... I Again, obviously, with all the ambiguity of this film, there's no confirmation, and this is me thinking out loud, but again, does that lead credence to that? There's um, an otherworldliness to Mandy, as with how in the framing of the film as well. Um, so it's 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 all the questions, but obviously with the fantastical elements here, and as we're touching upon the Black Skulls, the demonic biker gang, it's interesting, um, intriguing, weird and unsettling in how um, a leather-clad, gimpy biker gang from hell turns up, and yet it does not feel out of place. It's, no, it... they scared the shit out of me first time I saw them. Genuinely, yeah. I found them quite frightening. I watch a lot of horror films. Anyone who knows me knows that I watch a lot of horror films, and most monsters in horror films don't make me feel anywhere near as uncomfortable as these guys did. And yeah, they don't feel super out of place because this is a weird place where they live. And I'm just there thinking, yeah, there's probably some weirdos going around dressed like that, but man, they are horrifying. They, they come in, they're on big, uh, they're on motorcycles. Is there one on, a, on an ATV or have I just imagined that? I'm pretty sure at least one of them is on an ATV. Yeah. And they've got they they actually kind of remind me of the Cenobites from yeah, Hellraiser. For sure, they're, 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 they're these sadomasochists who. I, I suppose there's two ways to interpret this film. There's a very literal way of just looking at the the plot, the kayfabe, if you will, and then there's the more ambiguous way that looking at the symbolism of it all. Uh, I, within the film itself, uh, the Black Skulls were a group of drug runners. They were they were couriers for the, for the local gangs, uh, and they were given a bad batch of LSD, and it drove them insane. They took this 
really potent, really bad LSD, and it, it melted their minds. And now they, as we learn a little bit later on, we get a glimpse into their world when when Red takes some of their LSD. They presumably just see the world in horrific, violent, uh, disturbing images, which is presumably why they're able to commit seemingly any act of, of horror and not feel bad about it. They're, they're devoid of any kind of, of empathy or sympathy or remorse. They're, and they just kind of growl. <laughs> they're like animals. And yeah. the horn's blown and they arrive and they're made an offering of just this massive mason jug of uh, or mason jar, whatever it's called, of, of LSD. And um, let me put it this way. Later on in the film, Red puts like a drop of this LSD on his finger, just the tiniest drop, and just dabs it on his tongue. And he has horrific, violent hallucinations. This guy, this black skull, just glugs the whole thing. Just, just an entire jar of this LSD. And you're thinking, well, if one drop of it is enough to drive a man insane, what the fuck is a full jar doing to someone? Sure enough, it's morphed them into demons from hell. <laughs> if that if this isn't the film promoting a strong anti-drug message, then I don't know what is. I, I think don't do of, drugs, kid. You'll turn into a demon. You'll turn into a biker demon. Um, and no, it's not cool, kids. Don't do it. I think what I enjoy as well is that the names of the Black Skulls, um, I, they don't get named as such in the film, but there's Scratch, Scabs, and there's Fuck Pig. And fuck pig. You can you you can probably <laughs> take one guess as to which of the three is fuck pig, um, <laughs> which which you just think as well the 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 person who played fuck pig when you you know forever <laughs> ever submitting like an acting CV is like oh yes I was a I played the role of fuck pig in Mandy like wow okay sit down let's talk about that, um, but such. Such an intriguing invention um, of like horror monsters, which I, I don't think the Black Skulls get enough credit for just how um, just <laughs> terrifying that they are. Because again, th- seen the film three times, um, I've seen the Black Skulls appear at eight o'clock in the morning. I, I've seen terror. I've seen horror. Um, I think it's it's a shame that they're not. Sort of not talked about more in the horror lexicon of movie monsters, but it's uh, one of those one of those things. And then, I guess in a way, they all sort of get a little bit of time to shine in little fight scenes with Nicolas Cage as well. Um, kind of feels a bit like a video game. They feel like mini bosses almost. You gotta you gotta get through these guys if you want to get to the to the big the big bad. I mean, to use your Far Cry analogy again, which I think is very pertinent. Yeah, it is very Far Cry. This, this. <laughs> all the Far Cry games have like a lot of drugs trips in them as well, don't they? I think huh. every every game has at least seventeen drug scenes in it. Uh, certainly, yeah. number five does. That definitely has a drug yeah, with, adult with the, boss. Yeah, fight. With, with the bliss and the hallucinations and God, I mean, Mandy's Far Cry the movie. Wow. <laughs> There we go. We proved it, everyone. Irrefutable proof that Mandy is the Far Cry movie we deserve. But Far Cry 
does not have its own fuck pig with a, a blade penis, um, <laughs> which is, I mean, you know, let's call a spade a spade here. It's one of the most horrifying movie weapons I think I've ever seen. Um, yeah, you thought Seven was bad. You ain't seen nothing. <laughs> oh boy, you have not seen anything. Um, but obviously with the black skulls in the picture now, um, th- this is when... And I I was watching this in part with my other half, and I was, I was just like, when the cult and the black skulls invade the home when Mandy and Red are sleeping, I was like, if we fucking wake up and the black skulls are there, it's over. Just do what you yeah. got to do. Rip me to what shreds. Yeah. Uh, it's the flashing lights of it all. Um, it's it's a very, it's a horrifying scene when they invade the house. Um, and now I'm just thinking about the black skulls again. And part of me just wants to stop recording and cry. Uh, but we we will certainly power through. Um, so Mandy is abducted, uh, and this is something we've touched upon before. This is one of our um, various LSD scenes in here where she's. She gets a droplet in the eye. She's, I think it's a dr- a drug or a wasp that's in a jar of the LSD that she gets stung with. I think it's a hornet, isn't it? Like a giant hornet. Could well be a hornet. Could well it, be it, a hornet. It's an amazing practical effect. It's this really unnerving uh, sort of, I guess it must be an animatronic because it moves. And it, oh, it's... I mean, if you've not, I mean, if you've not seen Mandy, then this this episode of the podcast will probably make no sense to you. But if you've not seen Mandy, then yeah, just stop listening now and Google Mandy Wasp slash on it, and just look at that thing. It's this big black. I think it's just all, like mostly black. It's hard to tell because of the the color filter that's over this whole film. It's hard to tell what color anything is. But it's got this yeah. massive stinger, and they just jam it into Mandy's neck, and it's it's horrible. I mean, it, it is in a film full of uh, blood and gore and violent hallucinations. Yeah, this is a very violent, very intense film. I think the one scene that stuck with me the most, I guess, because it's something I never thought I'd see in a film, it's just this giant hornet being jammed into someone's throat. Uh, to yeah. induce paralysis it's who thinks of stuff like that you know it's <laughs> it really sticks with me this scene ever since i watched it the, the one thing that's gone around in my head of oh god not the not the murder hornet jesus i mean panos is a funky dude let's put it um that way with the utmost respect i had he's he's a funky kind of guy and what do you think cronenberg esque that's the very Cronenberg. A lot. I know I've said it before, but uh, a lot of Cronenberg stuff in this film. Absolutely, um, and this gives us not the introduction, but a much better window into the world of Jeremiah Sand. With not only that, Mandy has to be drugged before she can be presented before him. Um, but this is when we get to know him a lot more. He's there in his white robe. He's playing his latest single. Um, He's basically alluding that God spoke to him and gave him the all clear to do whatever he wants, including taking Mandy for his own ends. Um, and this is when it's this, with his sort of slow, trippy, kind of 60s, 70s ish, very hippie, um, tr- 
trancey music playing in the background when he this is when he unrobes and he's saying like be gentle with me and he's kind of like feeling himself and he's just like looking into the ceiling into the sky um and then again credit to the full commitment of like linus roach here full hog we're seeing full hog out here as he presents himself before mandy i always respect it when an actor goes full hog in a film that takes pardon the pun that takes balls to <laughs> to show you meat and two veg to the world like that uh, that's yeah it's, nice one. it's it's great commitment linus roach said uh, in interviews that um, well, aside from the fact that in his first reading of the script, he didn't get what the film was about, which... Um, I don't blame him. <laughs> who would on that first reading? He said that scene, he did have reservations because the script called for him to masturbate as well. Um, Panos did take it out after some thought. Roach went back and thought, you know what? At the end of the day, we're actors. We're here to serve the movie and it makes sense. So I'll, you know, I'll, I'll disrobe on that. He cited as well... Um, Margot Robbie appearing fully nude in The Wolf of Wall Street as a deciding factor in this. And he said, Margot Robbie, um, I think she's spoken since and said that she regrets doing it. I think she's said something about that. But she said, even though it's not what I wanted, it's what the film needed. It served the character. It's not like like it harmed her career. Yeah, like maybe the obscure actor Margot Robbie, you know. She's done pretty well for herself, so... Those neighbours actors always doing well for themselves. What are they I mean, all? She wouldn't about? do it now, obviously. I think maybe at the time, because she was a lesser known entity, maybe there was that thing of like, oh, it's a big film, it's a Scorsese film, and this could be my big break. You know, it, it, it wouldn't happen today because she's too famous and can, can dictate that stuff more. But I do think when you're an actor and maybe like Linus Roach, you're, you're more of a character actor. And you're in this film. It's got Nick Cage in it. It's got the potential to be something special. You just, yeah, you got to do what you got to do to serve the story. And ultimately, you are playing a foul character who who is utterly detestable in a film full of demonic biker gang cannibals. He is somehow the most despicable character in the piece because he's an actual character. As, as scary as the black schools are, they're not really characters they're more just vehicles for mayhem and violence whereas jeremiah sand he has clear motivations he has uh, a defined personality a, a defined attitude behavioral characteristics you know who he is as a person and the more you learn about it the more you think wow what a turd of a guy and as you what said <laughs> definitely not charles manson but um i, I think you know elephant in the room I think obviously Charles Manson taking his inspiration for the character of Sand. They Manson, also a failed musician, took it very personally when his music was insulted. Jeremiah Sand, like Manson and his followers, referred to his victims of pigs. Psychedelic drugs were used before acts of violence as well. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic point that you make that even with a film that includes the Black Skulls and Funk Pig, for Jeremiah Sand, and with everything that happens in this film, for Jeremiah Sand to come out and be the most despicable and skin crawling and um awful person of them all again it's just massive credit to the full committal here as we're talking with the the full nude scene for uh linus roach to commit to it and obviously it's a, it's a very big scene because that's i don't think calm for the storm is maybe the right answer there but it's 
before the deciding factor that sends Red down his journey. Um, with this scene here, with obviously, I think uh, Jeremiah Sands being an embodiment almost of like male entitlement and male ego, and then Mandy kind of doing a response that makes sense and just laughing at him, laughing hard, laughing strong, laughing just at his laughing at what he's presenting there. Um, watching that scene for you when this is, you know, this is, you know, the start of things that are going to happen here. Uh, how did that scene sort of, you know, have, affect you when it was all playing out there? I knew that it was obviously all going to go horribly wrong. But at the same time, I love Mandy's defiance because she's showing that in a moment of, literal paralysis and uh, in a situation where you know, she's a smart person she knows that if she doesn't acquiesce to this guy then they're going to do something horrible to her and they've done horrible things to her already and she's not even done anything yet so god knows what they'll do if she does do something but she looks at you know jeremiah sand let's call a spade a spade he's a loser he's sure. a failure he is a bitter man who failed as a musician, not because there was a conspiracy against him, but because his music wasn't very good. He's hanging... And I like the setting of this film in the early 80s because he is this hanger-on of, of the 60s and 70s hippie movement. Everyone else has kind of moved on and grown up a bit, and he's still stuck in the past because he's trying to recapture those former glories. And he's got a bunch of people along with him, and he's obviously got them on drugs, much like Charles Manson did. He's got a bunch of hippies, fed, plied them with drugs, and said, "Yeah, follow me. I'm, I'm, I'm your god now. I'm your leader. I know everything." And you know, drug addicts will do anything for more drugs. You can say any old shit, and they'll agree. Like, yeah, 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 just, just give me more drugs, please. Whatever. Yeah. And he, there's a brilliant moment. He gives quite a lengthy monologue which maybe might turn... It's, it's a long monologue. He just keeps going and going and going. But he's a shit talker. That's what he does. He gives these long rambling speech. He, he goes full Bray Wyatt. He, he puts <laughs> a, a long promo that maybe doesn't really go anywhere, but it fits the character. And I love the moment where he's, he's talking to Mandy and it's a shot of Jeremiah's face... And it, it crossfades between his and Mandy's face, like overlaid on him. Yes. It's yeah. Really, the editing in this film, I don't know the name of the editor, but they did a bang up job. The editing in this film is, 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 is wonderful. And yeah, the, the crossfade of, you know, maybe that's Mandy's POV, maybe that, that that's what she's seeing because of, of how how uh, how much she's tripping. Maybe that's more uh, an out-of-body sort of thing for Jeremiah where he sees he and Mandy as one and the same. Or, or maybe it's showcasing this idea that they're in a bit of a battle. They're on even footing at that moment. He might have the advantage in terms of holding her hostage, but Mandy, ultimately, she's she's the smartest person in the room. She's the most capable person in the room. And, yeah, when she laughs at him and defends him and stops him, okay, maybe not a, a a good move, but when you're in that situation where your choices are 
be forced to join a cult and be the mistress of this lunatic or tell them to go fuck themselves. Mandy picks the option of her autonomy and of, of her agency. And it's fantastic. It really sends her character home, that she is her own person. She doesn't need anyone else. She's got her life. She's happy with it. She's obviously been through some stuff in the past that, that has made her the way she is. And yeah, her only response is to laugh because what she sees is just this, this bitter guy who's just got all his kit off and uh, waxed lyrical about how he's the bit, how he's the bee's knees, uh, when in reality he's just some sad hippie in uh, in a camper van. <laughs> it's it's. I'm with Mandy on this one. It's a great description, and just to sort of jump in there, editor uh, Brett W. Backman. Um, so well nice. done, Brett. Well done. I mean, it's obviously there's so many interpretations of how the cross fading faces could be. Um, I said Mandy maintains her autonomy at the end. There's the hint she's been through some stuff. So there's the scar on the face. There's the story that she tells earlier in the film to Red about how her father made her and her friends crush uh, baby starlings, um, which you know hints that she's been through some stuff as well. And with obviously Jeremiah's ego sort of crushed by this, that that. Uh, uh, quick scene straight after this where he's looking at himself in the mirror going just like begging like tell me what to do tell me what to do tell me what to do and then suddenly it's the flip it's don't ever doubt yourself and then suddenly where we see Red who's been bound and gagged outside with barbed wire this whole time it's horrific it's horrific bound by barbed wire on the hands on a pole has like barbed wire sort of uh, almost like garroting him in the mouth as well and this is when Jeremiah is still topless and he comes outside with some of the cult and he's like, you're like you and that little whore think that you're so special and suddenly that we're seeing all the venom, the vitriol, the bitterness of this man coming to the fore. Um, as he Cage gets stabbed, it's the blade of the pale knight stabs Cage and he has to watch as they uh, put Mandy in, uh, I think it's like a yellow sleeping bag and then they hoist it up and then set her alive. So he has to watch Mandy burn in front of his very eyes. It's, uh, I, I, I don't know, it's a tough scene. It's a tough scene to watch. Um, and it, you know, this is when obviously the Cajun wheels get set in motion. Um, but I was looking into this as well. Um, I think I think that the quote is when Nicholas Cage gets stabbed. It's uh, take a good look, you piece of human excrement. This is Brother Swan saying this. This is the tainted blade of the Pale Knight, straight from the abyssal lair. Um, apparently, it's a, a Dungeons and Dragons reference. Uh, Pale Knight is the mother of demons and the abyssal lord. So I think on one hand I can say, oh, maybe they've used Dungeons and Dragons as a reference. Maybe it's a coincidence. But I like to imagine um, that obviously you know. The, the weak facade of Jeremiah Sand as a man who's not let uh, the summer of love go and he's carried it on into something very dangerous, that he took inspiration of that and just fooled people like, oh, this is the blade from the abyssal lair. But it, once upon a time, he just enjoyed Dungeons and Dragons, which I think... Yeah, um, yeah, quite... he just read a few fantasy books, maybe, played a few games and just thought, okay, I'll spin this into my own lore. That's a good... I never, I never even considered that. That's a good way of looking at it. 
I, th- I think, you know, like I said, a few ways to read it, but in my head, that's what's happened. He's taken law from elsewhere, applied it to his own little world, plied some gullible people with drugs, and now they're like, I'm fully in on the abyssal layer. And uh, I, I want uh, I want a scene where Brother Swans, uh, well, it can't happen now, because spoiler alert, he dies. Um, but I want a scene where Brother Swan is just maybe at a library and... Uh, or, or like a games workshop or something, just uh, comes across a Dungeons and Dragons book and, and sees the, the Blade of the Pale Knight. Well, hang on a minute, wait a second. <laughs> and that's it. He he, re- he rehabilitates and he turns his whole life around. Either turns his life around, <laughs> turns his life around and becomes a successful D and D podcaster, um, oh, or he God. goes back to Jeremiah and is like, "We got to sue these motherfuckers, man. What the hell is this all about? They robbed us. What the <laughs> fuck is a D twenty? <laughs> Children of the Noon Dawn brought down by a board came sued beyond um, all possible doubt. Yeah, if, if Nicolas Cage can't stop them, then litigation can. <laughs> the next best thing after a, a chainsaw battle and a death, a heavy metal uh, blade is the law and litigation. Um, so after this, uh, Cage basically has to use the blood from his arms as lubrication to slip from the bindings. Um, yeah. weeps over Mandy's charred remains. And then we get another very little weird snippet. He comes back into the house and we get the Cheddar Goblin advert um, where he watches the TV and she goes, Cheddar Goblin. And then the the shot here lingers on like a small TV showing this fantastical creature called the Cheddar Goblin who vomits macaroni and cheese on children with some very dark undertones. Um, it turns out that scene, the Cheddar Goblin, was directed by Casper Kelly, who you may know from the viral Adult Swim shorts. Uh, Too Many Cooks in 2014 also directed that, that makes, as well. That, now that you said that, that makes perfect sense. Only it's the exact the, same tone as Too Many Cooks. <laughs> Only the person responsible for Too Many Cooks could have uh, helmed Cheddar Goblin. Take the um, luck to make a stew. Nicholas Cage with a chainsaw too. <laughs> too many children, too many children, <laughs> too many the, skulls. The Cheddar Goblin ads, really. It, it's much like how Too Many Cooks is such a fantastic recreation of 80s sitcoms, but with that dark twist. Um, one of the Cheddar Goblin thing kicked off. At first, I thought, oh, is this like a real advert from from the 80s that obviously we didn't get over here because it's American. And then it becomes abundantly clear that no, no, it's it's horrifying. But man, if it doesn't capture the vibe of an eighties advert, Kraft are missing a trick. Kraft needs to introduce the Cheddar Goblin. <laughs> I, I, I would like to see more media of the Cheddar Goblin. I think I can um, sort of tail off with that. Um, but this precedes um, a film, a film, a scene which can very much be taken out of context. In the the pantheon of Cage rage and Cage losing his shit, this is Nicholas Cage. Iconic. An iconic scene here, Nicholas Cage in the bathroom, bottle of vodka in hand, in a tiger tea, in his white pants, chugging vodka. It's a static shot of him in this bathroom, just like screaming and screaming and screaming. Um, I think this is a scene that Panos described as like an absurdist one-act play almost. He didn't want the camera to move, he wanted to just to linger. Um, this is uh, a gripping scene, and you know we can talk about Cage losing this shit all night long, 
but this is very much a cage rage that is um, that is earned. Had he been nominated for an Oscar for Mandy, which was never going to happen, but had he been nominated, this is the clip they would have shown. A thousand percent. This is the this is the one. This is some of the best acting of his life, and it's just him screaming. But it's the context of it. After just seeing what he's been through, it's like, well, obviously Nicolas Cage, the person, has never been through anything as traumatic as this. But my God, he's convincing me that he has been. <laughs> because it, uh, he's in his underwear, he's drinking vodka. He's like, Nicolas Cage, anything, anything for the shot, a- anything for the film, he will go out there and he will do it. And to, to bear your soul like this on camera, mm. one take, like it's like a scene from a play almost. It's you know it makes me think that man, we are we are being deprived of Nicolas Cage in the theatre because I think he could make a fine theatre actor personally. Um, it would be oh, ripping. It, it's would... you're you're glued to the screen for this one. It really is this cathartic moment of right. Mandy's been killed. Everything's been thrown into disarray. This guy's about to go on a fucking tear, but we need, he needs that. Because for the rest of the film, he's relatively calm and cool and collected because he lets all of his rage out here. This is the moment. It's like, right, I have to get this rage out of my system so I can be focused on the task at hand. So I, because I know what I need to do and it's going to take every ounce of strength that I have. I'm going to have to go to a dark, deep place inside of me that I've not gone to for a long time. But before I do that, I just have to scream and shout and uh, let it all out. These are the things that I dream about. Come on, I'm talking to you, come on. Um, exactly that, exactly yeah. that. Oh, man. I, wow. He said in an interview oh. with The Guardian that, um, and I think it feeds into all the emotions we're talking about here, he said before shooting started, his 14-year marriage to Alice Kim Cage came to, in his own words, a sudden end, which was a shocker for me. Didn't see it coming. Those feelings had to go somewhere. Um, oh, so he decided to oh, sad. put them into oh. the performance. Um, so it's uh, very much the channeling here. There was He touched upon the same thing in an interview with GQ magazine. He said he felt he had the necessary life experience to play Red. Um, for those who don't know, Panos Cosmatos originally wanted Nick Cage to play Jeremiah Sand. So that means there's an alternative timeline somewhere where Nicholas Cage derobed and we saw Full Hog. Um, but but uh, damn you, Panos, for robbing us of that. Um, but you could Cage... have played both roles and have Jeremiah be his evil twin. Job done. Adaptation two, adapt harder. Oh my god. <laughs> oh. You've just ruined adaptation for me. God damn it. You set me up, I knock him down. You set me up, I knock him down. Um, Panos approached Nicholas Cage, wanted him to play Sand. Uh, Cage said he didn't really feel he could bring anything to Sand, wanted to play Red. Uh, felt he had the necessary life experience to give something to the character. So he said it was his third marriage failing. He said he was still processing the passing of his father years before. He said he'd been in a wheelchair for some time as well. So all of that gave him the rage and the understanding of loss that he felt that he needed um so for a year sort of conversations kind of died because he says like i don't want to play sand i can't i can't give you anything there but uh later on through um spectre vision and elijah wood panos also stated in an interview that 
He had a dream in which Cage played Red and described the dream as compelling. They met again to talk about the film, talk uh, more details about how the film explored the themes of love and the loss of love. Uh, They discussed the same themes in their own lives, and then they felt that by that point the things just started clicking, and then Panos felt totally confident in Cage's ability to play Red as well, which I think ultimately... The correct, even though we are deprived of Golden Hog Hog, I think ultimately the right choice. Um, I feel like if Cage played Jeremiah San, Mandy, we, we watch Mandy and, and think, hmm, Cage was underutilized here. But Jeremiah's not in the film, and Linus Roach makes the most of his screen time. But he, he's a character actor, he's someone who can disappear into a role like that. But if you're watching this film and then Nicolas Cage is the villain and then he disappears for these long stretches, I don't know, I feel like I'd be thinking, ah, I feel a bit short-changed here. I want more of more of Cage being this sadistic freak. And then yeah. who would play Red? Who the hell would play Red? Who? It's it's a question that I do not have the answer to, but, you know, fuck it, Willem Dafoe. Um, I don't know. I mean, as, as much as I love me some Dafoe... I don't know. There are some there are some roles that were made for Nicholas Cage, and I think Red Miller was not that he couldn't have done a good uh, Jeremiah Sand, but Red Miller was um, a Cage role through and through. I feel so. The, the question of who would have played elsewhere, um, don't really know. But it's it's uh, again we talk about the ensemble, but it's a fantastic Cage performance, nonetheless. Um, Obviously, carrying that rage into the next scene where he goes to visit Carruthers, played by Bill Duke, to go and pick up a little crossbow. Um, rest in peace, Bill Duke. Rest in peace, Bill Duke. Um, Bill, he didn't talk much about the film, but he's it said that he was very much up for being a part of the film. And there's the scene, obviously, when Cage is talking to Carruthers about what's going on. Um, and then he says that he's hunting... Jesus freaks, and I'd, I'd never caught it the first time. But if you listen closely, Cage says Jesus freaks, and then Carruthers replies, "I didn't know they were in season," um, which like a little subtle thing. Um, and then we obviously get Cage describing them as like crazy, evil. Um, but I think this is like another nice calm before the storm scene. Um, Carruthers. As you explained earlier, gives us the backstory of the Black Skulls being couriers, now sadomasochist, LSD, drug demons. And it leads us to Red forging uh, the Battle Axe, a.k.a. the Beast. Because what else would you call that uh, implement of destruction as well? Um, well, the, I mean, you want to talk about D&D influences. The first time I watched this film and I saw that Battle Axe, I was like, yeah, well, that that is just a that's just a weapon from from a tabletop RPG. That's what you've done there. You got Cage. I think he melts down like a bunch of sheet metal. Yeah, and um, forges this blade. It looks incredible. I want to. I think you can buy a replica of it, but it's not not cheap. Yeah, there's um, like a fan-owned merchandise site called Legion M. They do a lot of Mandy and Nicholas Cage-approved merchandise. One of them was a replica of the beast, and I think it was like three hundred and fifty, four hundred dollars, or something mm. like that. So, 
I want it, but I think it's sold out anyway. Um, but they also did like a lifelike replica Nick of the Cage red mask that's doused in blood, and that costs like in excess of a grand. Um, if money what? was no option, I would own the <laughs> Nicolas Cage face mask, but money oh is... Oh my god. Legion. I you going to say it was like 50 quid and that you want it, that you want to get it. <laughs> to, to I think I think it's a guy called Rubber Larry who makes the masks. He's I've seen some of his work on Instagram. He'd done one for like Keanu Reeves um and the guy who plays Daryl Dixon in The Walking Dead whose name escapes me. Um, Mr. Reedus. Um but I will say to the credit of the craftsman very very good quality replicas and very likely worth every cent that you'd pay for them. So, not in this lifetime, Daryl, but maybe, uh, maybe in another lifetime. Um, but if you've got the money and the wherewithal, there is. You can also buy the Nicolas Cage shirts. It's like the uh, the the lion shirt, the forty four shirt. So, through Legion M, if you have a lot of spare money, a lot of spare money, and you want to pay import fees from America. You can get a very, very good Mandy cosplay. Also, this podcast is not sponsored by Legion M. I feel I have to put that in there for legal purposes, he says, question mark. Um, if they want to sponsor the podcast, I mean... I mean, if you want, if you want to throw a mask my way... Yeah, you know. If you, if you want to throw a $2,000 mask my way, I won't say no. no Send me the beast, and I'll have a very awkward conversation with my postman. Yeah, it says, can you declare what's in this? And sir, you don't understand. It's from a film where Nicolas Cage does loads of drugs and kills some deviants, right? Uh, okay, <laughs> I've got what's in this package: Nicolas Cage's face and a weapon. <laughs> Leave. <laughs> I need to be alone. <laughs> I need to be alone now. Um, but I suppose, <laughs> speaking of the weapon and weapons being put to use, uh, the crossbow he gets is called the Reaper. So he's got the Reaper and the Beast. D and D influences. I love the biblical sort of descriptors. Everything, nothing in this film is just a thing. A crossbow isn't a crossbow. An axe isn't an axe. Everything's got this grandiose naming convention, and I bloody love it. it it's it's exactly how I want every film to be written from now on. I, I want I want um, the next. The next uh, Fast and Furious film just have like a crowbar in it. It's called The Annihilator. That, that's that's what I want. What I want. Hey, Vin Diesel's a big Dungeons and Dragons fan. He could make it happen. Hey, I mean, they've they've gone to places for less in the Fast and Furious films, but yeah. I suppose, like you say, it gives the implication of world building and lore as well, which is which makes things interesting and fun. Um, I suppose, obviously, touched on speaking on the cage shirts as well. We get to uh, starts fighting with various members of the Black Schools. There's one that he shoots through with um, a crossbow. Um, I don't know if this is scratch or scabs. It's kind of hard to tell the difference with these with these Black Schools. The only one we know is Fuck Pig. <laughs> That's the... the only one we know is Fuck Pig. Um, yeah. <laughs> So I mean, we I mean we get to this point. He's captured. He escapes. He fights with Fuck Pig. He nearly gets an erection blade. Um, oh god! I, th- I feel like we can't gloss over this because it's horrible. So he kills one of them, doesn't he? They're on the road. He sets up some some like proximity mines and just sends one of them hurtling. Yeah. So there's oh, like one crap or something. 
there's one I think on the ATV, and then he yeah. manages. I think he must set some kind of trap because he shoots it through the rope with the crossbow. Yeah, I think, and then he goes and to then... win them over, but he gets captured. So three of them are still technically alive, and then he's got the and one he... that rips his shirt. Um, he's like trapped in this room, and one of them he just throws one of them into the abyss. <laughs> yeah, he hits one with a, a loose pole, and they fall into the abyss. Then he battles with Fuckpig, who's busy snorting a a a, a Tony Montana level of cocaine yeah, there, a, a mountain. metric fuck ton of coke, while watching like seventies porn. Yeah. There's a guy with a big porn stash, proper old school pornography. It's, um, what did you? I think? don't know how he masturbates. He's got a he's got a sword for a penis. I mean, I, we we I can ponder. We can ponder this question. We're not exaggerating. I have to make this clear to people listening. It's not like he's got like a blade attached to his penis, like like in Seven. Just instead of a penis, there's just a fucking sword. Like it's just just oh, a it's... big sword where his dick should be. It's what? How did he even? How did that happen? How did that come about? What? I think we, I don't know. We we we. Ours is not to reason. Ours is not to reason with the genitalia of demons. Yeah, I think, I think there so are questions. there are some things that should be, there are unknown unknowns, things that should be left unknown. I think fuckpiece and anatomy is probably going to be one of them because that yeah. it will drive a lesser man insane. I think now, it's fair Cage, to say. Cage's kill of fuckpig is uh, what kind of gives him the iconic look this film uh, the poster of the film I believe um, well, his face just covered in blood uh, fuck pigs got him pinned down to the ground and he uh, is able to grab is, is, it a, is it a knife or a bit of broken glass from the table I can't remember what he, what he I killed I think him. it's glass because he gets thrown through the table through, and he grabs some, table, grabs some glass then, I think yeah. He grabs a shard of glass and slits Fuck Pig's throat. And blood just, it's Kill Bill style. Blood just spurts out all over Cage's face. He's laughing like a maniac. Um, and yeah, that's it. That's the look now. He's got the face covered in blood. Um, he's dispatched of uh, three of Black Skulls. I think the one he threw into the Ooh. abyss comes back because he yeah, does the Bruce Lee yeah. neck that's snap. That's the one. That's the one female member, I believe, of the group. I think. God, I'm not into. Um, it's hard to tell. It's it's <laughs> a very it's a very it's a very xenobite xenobite kind of thing. It's yeah. it's hard to discern um, if there is even if gender is a thing that exists in the world of the black yeah, skulls. True, that is true. Um, Just sort of, they are quite well. Androgynous is uh, not a term because like fuck pig is. I mean, he's he's saying something with that penis. So um, he's he's about as manly as a man's gonna get. Sword for a for, for a schlong. I mean, fuck pig is Gillette the best a man can get. Um, <laughs> and then we get uh, another one gets the uh, the Bruce Lee neck snap. Um, and then it's after this. I think it's the one he initially shot the crossbow bolt through. He's kind of got the. Uh, the slipknot kind of spikes, the pinhead kind of spikes on this mask. Then they have Ray Jones style, yeah, yeah. They have that fight with the the beast for that flaming car, and he yeah. Manages... So he 
gets he gets he has the reaper and he shoots this guy through the neck he doesn't even flinch and literally it just goes prong and he doesn't even move how strong is that LSD? no sells him no sells him absolutely no sells him full Hulk Hogan just no that's not going to work for me brother (laughs) (laughs) I mean and Cage said uh, I'm the young rookie here this is my push it is going to work it decapitates him, but not before there's that like that haunting growl of that last black soul going like she's still burning, like haunting echoes of um, uh, to sort of see him out from this mortal realm, um, and then we we meet uh, I believe the character is called the chemist as well, played by Richard Brake. Um, yeah, I I would. I don't know if anyone else has pointed this out. He looks so much like Jackie Earl Haley. I thought it was Jackie Earl Haley when I saw him. You know what? Same. Yeah. Even, though, even though I've seen this film three times, and I know it's not Jackie Earl Haley. I was like, that's 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 fucking Freddy Krueger. That is. That's that's Rorschach. Yeah. Who's... That's Rorschach. <laughs> like, What's oh, he doing no, there? It's not. Yeah. Uh, but this this is the gentleman who is responsible for the LSD. Um, in circulation in and around the children of the new dawn. He, he created the black skulls. Um, but he he tainted the LSD in an attempt to kill them, didn't he? Because they were he didn't like them or something. I can't remember if I've just made that up. I think it could definitely be a, an implied reading of them because when Cage and you know this is like Cage in like the the leather vest as well, covered in blood. He's got. Um, his weaponry with him, and you think there might be a fight here, and the chemist has got a tiger in a cage that he just lets out, but then he turns and he looks at him, um, and just some, I don't know, I just found like this this like dialogue so great, it's like, oh man, they wronged you, you exude cosmic darkness, as like cages are sort of like stood in the, um, I don't even know what it is, that facility where all those drugs go along. Well, and at this point, Cage is off his tits as well. He's had the Black Skull LSD. He's had some of that coke. I mean, he is... Mm-hmm. Oh, he's so gone at this point. He's, I think, but as how much, your tits as it's possible to be. Yeah, how much of this is real? You know? Is there really a tiger? Or is he just seeing <laughs> Uh Well, I, I saw about this as well. Um, Richard Brake said in a tweet in 2018 that an early draft of the script, the Bengal tiger uh, called Lizzie, was actually a lizard, and then he recounted that he arrived on set that day and director Panos Cosmatos said, oh, by the way, Lizzie's a tiger now. And act- basically, action. So it's like, okay, cool, we're working with a tiger now. So Was it a real tiger? I think it was. Holy I th- shit. I think it was a real tiger. Um, oh, my God. I, I you imagine just, thinking you're going to work with a lizard, and it's <laughs> it's uh, that's a Russo twist right there. I mean, you turn up and then there's just like a tiger, but what a swerve! It's a swerve. So, like, obviously, Red's high off his tits. There's a tiger. He's looking for, I think, it, the church or the radio tower or something. He saw in the hallucination. Um, the radio tower. The radio tower. Uh, uh, the chemist does tell him where to find it. And then he hallucinates again. He sees like, and this this animated scene of hallucination where he sees an animated Mandy pulling, uh, again, the use of green here, a glowing 
green part or organ from this tiger beast. Um, what does it mean? I don't fucking know, but I was into it. It looks cool. <laughs> sum up the review of this film. I don't know what went on, but it looked cool. I mean, it's a fair summary. It's a fair <laughs> summary. Um, and then next thing we know, Cage is sort of in the woods. He's getting closer to where the Church of the New Dawn is based. Um, and this is where he said earlier, Brother Swan gets taken out. It's the pointy end of the beast rammed into his mouth. Uh, but Sister Lucy is spared. Um, Sister Lucy's a member of the cult who doesn't talk. Very, very likely, probable she was sexually abused by Jeremiah Sand. Uh, Jeremiah played like Russian roulette with her in front of like a bound red earlier in the film as well. So he recognizes that she's she's just as much a victim as Mandy was. She she's what Mandy would have become had she not rebuffed Jeremiah. I think that's obvious that the implied yeah note in that. Um, and he recognizes that she was coerced into a lot of... She, she played no real part in the horrors. And she had no real support of it. She's just been... Uh, yeah, she, uh, she's she been taken... She was taken in by a bad crowd. And maybe Red sees himself as freeing her. And if I, if I dispatch the rest of this cult, she has an opportunity to, to make something of herself and leave the horrors behind. But Man, Brother Swan's death is... Uh, I don't feel bad for it, but man, it's gnarly. It's... Uh, sort of drowned in his own blood. It's, yeah. It's 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 a very a very bloody death, but a fitting way for him to yeah. go out. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, then, and then I think after that, it's I think it's Brother Hanker who gets the axe yeeted into his head, um, which is like a great quick kill dispatched because we have to move on to um, some very, very iconic imagery of this film. Red Miller versus Brother Klopek, the chainsaw fight. Oh, um, my God. This was the... Before I watched this film, before I knew anything about it, I knew there was a chainsaw fight. It's Red's normal-sized chainsaw versus Brother Klopek's... How long I, is that fucking thing? Possibly large. I don't know how he lifts that thing up. I mean, he's he's a crazy strong dude, is our brother Klopek. Um But yeah. it's it's he took, he took one look at look at Buck Pig's sword penis. He's like, I can do you one better. <laughs> Hold my fuck pig. Check out mine. <laughs> um, but the fighting in the quarry, and I did sort of love just the um, just like the sort of the mistiness of the quarry, the back like the floodlights in the back, just the silhouettes of Red and Klopek just. Clashing chainsaws together. Um, it's it's an iconic fight, and it, this is something I said earlier. Like you, you sort of talk about a scene like this, and it's one of those things where you you can feel like, right, this is too outlandish. Now this is where a film could fall apart. But again, I don't know why. I can't tell you how, but it works. It just what, works. What the film does so well is it kind of eases you into everything. There's there's this escalation. Like we've got right, we, we've got this cult who are a bit weird, and there's this weird biker gang that they're able to summon. And then there's a battle axe 
and then there's this, there's that. And it, it just kind of drops new elements in, and each one builds on the one before it. So by the time you get to this point, you're like, right, massive chainsaw duel. All right, let's go. Yeah, well, why else haven't we done at this point? Yeah, it's. I think it's what we're, we're touching on here um, for all the video game and oh, well, game references. There is a Far Cryish D and D esque world building here, so it's. I think I think because the film's so visceral and visually interesting as well with all the colours that they use and such, um, it, it adds these elements as you've said there and to the point where it doesn't feel too outlandish when when you get them. Um, so it's and I think like you don't even realise it at the time. It's kind of like afterwards, it's like that chainsaw fight was a bit weird, wasn't it? But then you think, you know what? In the context of the film, I was fucking into it. I was really into it. Um, Have you ever wanted to see like a Star Wars style lightsaber duel book featuring Chainsaw's Nicholas Cage? We got it for you. It's right here. I half not... expected Duel of the Face to start playing. <laughs> do not let it be said that Nicholas Cage cannot do it all. Um, well, then we get like another another gory send off for a member of the children. Um, Cage gets the chain, throws it around. Uh, Brother Klopek's neck pulls him down onto the chainsaw, and blood is just in a cross shape, just spurting absolutely everywhere. So, f- for gorehounds out there, there's a little bit something in there for you as well. It's the second best chainsaw kill in the history of cinema, behind and only behind uh, the Evil Dead remake. Um, yes, where. Uh, I'll I'm swallow curious. your soul. Swallow this, <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> Change your <laughs> three face. Blood everywhere. If you've not seen the Evil Dead remake from 2013, it's fucking minted. Like, that is just genuinely a great film. It, it had... I saw it in the cinema, and, you know, I will say this much. I wasn't expecting to be as blown away as I was by that movie. Um, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of the Evil Dead franchise, and for me, it stands up with the, with the rest of them. And I will say this much as well, obviously, you know, we're, with Sam Raimi on the tongue, I, know, I don't know what this film would look like, but I would love to see Cage and Raimi work together in whatever form that may take. Oh, how has that not happened? Wow. Yeah, I you would have thought. You would have thought. Raimi's I mean, not made anything for a while, though. I mean, I know we're getting the Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness later this year. I'm still holding out hope for a Nick Cage Ghost Rider cameo. Will it happen? I expect it probably. It might. It probably won't. But Maybe the success of Doctor Strange can give Sam Raimi some... You know, he may drag me to hell after he did Spider-Man. Yeah. Maybe it'll be a case of, well, you delivered a hit movie for us, so here's the funding for whatever weird project you want to make. And then he gets Cajun. Maybe that's the way we go. That's the route we take. You know, I'm not I'm not one of these people who's like manifest the positive vibes, but if I'm gonna manifest anything, it's a Cage Raimi team up. So I'm gonna Yeah. I'm with you on that one. We're we're gonna put that out there into the universe. Um back in the universe of this film. Uh we're at the church now. We're coming towards the big finale. Uh, we've got Cage stalking through the red lit tunnels underneath the cameras following. Uh, we get you know Mother Marlene. She's decapitated. She's gone. Just the head being thrown into the room where Jeremiah and his his underwear is just feeling up the walls. It's um, vibing. You know? 
just vibing. God is in this room. He's saying. And then the final fated showdown. Um, Jeremiah trying to taunt Red. And there's just another great line here. It's kind of those, you know, there could be a lot of meaning implied to this. But when Jeremiah is kind of groveling for his life. And he's going like, oh, I'll fucking suck your dick, man. And then Cage says, <laughs> um, the psychotics drown where the mystic swims. You're drowning and I'm swimming. I was like, did I understand the line 100%? Not entirely, but it sounded fucking badass. Um, and then I suppose the final kill as well, um, where this Cage goes like... Gnarly. This is gnarly. Oh. It's just like, I am your god now, like the distorted voice. And we're talking about gnarly kills in this film. We <laughs> Red crushing his skull. Um, just With like, his bare hands. Incredible stuff. And he, his eye just pops out. <laughs> <laughs> the eye pops out. It's, and I mean, I think the film is not trying to hide this at all. It is, and I think we know we have to, again, we've used this term before, we have to call a spade a spade. When that head is crushed, this is an orgasmic release, especially for oh, Red. Yeah. I'm not saying that you, the listener, will have a spontaneous orgasm in watching that scene. It'd be weird if you did. You might. I'm not going to judge you. Um, Fuck Pigwood. Oh, fuck, fuck people with orgasm for a lot less. Let's be honest with ourselves. Um, but this is this is the release that the film has been building towards. Um, and then the church is set on fire as well, and Cage is walking out the fiery church. And th- the build-up to this point, and it's just like, oh, fucking yes! Um, it's Cage channeling this... this um, rage throughout the film ever since the bathroom scene uh, and Panos said of Red um, and collaborate, collaborating with Cage in the journey I think some people maybe these days perceive him as a Tasmanian devil or something where you just let him go and he runs a mark all over the set or something but he's actually an incredibly thoughtful methodical actor who really puts a lot of time and energy into preparing and modulating these things um, and I think I think it is as we've been saying it 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 shows it it really shows um he said as well um huge amount of admiration for him as a performer and his range of ability having the chance to work with him I really wanted to tap into the into almost every aspect of his ability and hopefully in a way that feels organic and integral to the movie but I really didn't want to miss the opportunity to play with Nicolas Cage I mean how often do you get a Nicolas Cage action figure to play with which on the back of that red, um, the red Miller pop vinyl, Mandy so far giving us the only Nicolas Cage pop vinyl for which I'll forever be in this film's debt. But to the point at hand... That's the only one. As far as I am aware, there is a red pop vinyl with blood and bloodless... You should one and pretend that it's Nicolas Cage. (sighs) I mean... I've said this before. The fact that isn't like at least like a Cameron Poe one, or even just a silly face-off one where it's just John Travolta's figure, but it says Nicolas Cage and vice versa. Like the marketing possibilities are endless, Funko. Why do you not listen to me and my emails? I keep sending you every week. Um, but through the through the the, the wonder of Spectavision and. Um, uh, Elijah Wood's production company, who they also praise for protecting them from outside influence of the suits and not getting involved in the film as well. When I, they're I talking interviews. Elijah Wood has used his Lord of the Rings money to just fund weird shit. 
that's the mess kind of thing up there. Elijah Wood is just good energy in the world and just making fucking weird shit that he loves and playing Animal Crossing in his spare time and I've got a <laughs> lot of time. Didn't he produce the Greasy Strangler as well? I think um, the Greasy Strangler, he starred with Nicolas Cage in The Trust. Um, which... The, the um, was it Maniac? Maniac, uh, was that the yeah. first person killer? Yeah. Yes, yeah, I, I, I've really seen that. Yeah, I, I've seen that. Interesting yeah, film. He, yeah, he's, he's throwing himself behind some, some out there stuff. I, I like it. A lot of time for Spectre Vision, a lot of time for Elijah Wood, and I don't mind telling you. But I suppose here we are at the climax of the film in more ways than one. The orgasmic release of the Jeremiah Sand head crush, and then again we, you know, we get the iconic image of an insane blood-covered grinning Nicolas Cage looking at the camera when he's driving in the car. When we've got when we're at this crescendo, I think it really is. Um, how how does all this and the build to this end? How does it all how did it all sort of work for you? How did you find from Jeremiah's skull crush to when the credits roll? Um, and how did that sort of leave you? I think the last 10, 15 minutes are great because, well, obviously we see him use all of his tools and all his weapons. Then with Jeremiah, it's personal. So he kills him with his bare hands. And I, I love that I love that Jeremiah is reduced to this pathetic wallowing mess that he, before he dies, it's not a quick death. He, it's prolonged. He feels all of this his fear and terror because he knows the inevitable is about to happen. There's no big fight between them either because Jeremiah's, you know, he surrounds himself with strong people like the Black Skulls and um, chainsaw-wielding nutters, but he himself is a, a just a weak, pathetic man and he's got nothing for Red and it's... Uh, Red, Red shows him who he actually is before he dies. He has to come to terms with the fact that yeah, he's not a prophet. He's not got any kind of connect, divine connection. He's just some guy. And uh, he pissed off just the personification of, of rage and determination. And yeah, the the it's a, it's a brilliant the head crushing as well. It's, I love a good uh, a good head crushing in a film. Uh, the twenty eighteen Halloween had a good one where Michael stomps on the dude's head and explodes. There's a good one in um, this brawl in cell block uh, 99 where Vince Vaughn just curb stomps a dude, his skull pops. I love a good head crush. I don't know why. I just think it's so... Tom's list of the top 10 head crushes in cinema coming soon. Yeah, it's just... Uh, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I might pitch that to Cultured Vultures. Um, yeah, he... He, he, he dispatches of him in such a matter-of-fact way that's what I like about Red as a character is he's he's obviously a very emotional guy, but when it comes to getting rid of the children of the New Dawn, he's not reveling in it. He's just like, you you need to die. You did something horrific. You need to die for it. And that's that's the long and short of it. And yeah, the shot of him laughing at the camera, we sort of get he, he hallucinates that Mandy is in the car with him and we the audience are we're like Mandy's POV almost. And then he drives off and that final shot of the car driving into the distance and you see the sky and it's just become this, it looks like Mandy's drawings. It's this otherworldly 
collection of planets and stars and obviously this is what Nicolas Cage well what Red I should say it's hard to not refer to a character played by Nicolas Cage as is the, the, creed of, the creed of this podcast but yeah Red is now on so many drugs so many drugs and it makes you wonder if much like the, the Black Skulls will his Will his psyche permanently be altered by all of this? Is that it now? Is he just going to see the world as this abstract collection of moons and stars and planets? And it's one of those films where you think, well, where the hell does he go now? What the, What does he do now? <laughs> where, where do you go from here? And it, it's... It's good that it ends where it does. You don't need a, an, an epilogue. You don't need anything else. It's, that's it. He's done what he needed to do. He's had the worst day ever. we got to call it there because we, we, there's, there is that ambiguity to it. What happens to Red afterwards? We don't know. Maybe him, him and Bill Duke just spend the next 20 years fishing and having, having fun, which would be nice. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be a, a, a Perth ending? I think I liked as well when the, when the credits roll, it's just silence. Cause yeah, it, like it's it's something I always forget about, and then I especially noticed it watching the film the other night. I was like, it's it's almost as if like they just knew like, I think you're gonna need a minute. So like let let you just sit with that, and it's like, thank you, thank you, Panos. This is um very very kind of you because I am gonna need a lot of minutes to process what I've seen here. And it's interesting as well when, because Panos describes the film, this film as being about the death of his parents as well. So it's interesting reading into the film. It's like a, a lot of ambiguity, a lot of messages, a lot of ways to take everything that happens in the movie. Um, and, you know, a, a fantastic score by the now late Icelandic composer Johan Johansson as well. Oh my god, yeah. Oh, Johan Johansson was a goddamn genius. Is uh, the score for Sicario special? Oh, oh my god, he he was. You want to talk about taking too soon? He had so much more to give, and yeah, Mandy is one of his crowning achievements for sure. Yeah, well, and the, the film obviously kindly dedicated to Johan Johansson. Um, after he passed in February 2018. Um, and it's... Well, I've been meaning to get the soundtrack on vinyl for a while because it's such such a beautiful score. Um, I, I'm usually... I don't go... I try not to go too crazy for like film scores a lot of the time, but this one, it's just another layer in this beautifully weird cake of a film that all makes it come together. A beautiful ingredient in a, a delicious, trippy, drug-ladled cake. Um... But with, yeah, with all that said, Rotten Tomatoes gave it ninety percent uh, as of recording. Nicolas Cage's tenth highest rated film on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, and universally, I think everyone in agreement that it's a fascinating piece of work. Uh, I know we'd like to see Cage and Raimi work together, but I hope whenever we get the next Panos Cosmatos film as well, uh, I hope there's some room for Nicolas Cage in there, uh, whatever form that may take. So I think Panos is one of incredibly exciting filmmaker. I'm very interested to see um, what happens next. Yeah, I think he's only made. Only two, as yeah. far as I'm aware. Yeah, Beyond the Black Rainbow and this in Mandy. So 
world is that gentleman's oyster, and I'll be here to sup a pont uh, with his his wonderful weirdness. But I suppose with that said, and I suppose, you know, just like the film and everything they discussed coming to the credits when you have to take a minute to think about everything that's happened. And as we come to sort of the end of the episode here, uh, wrapping up, um, as you have with Connor, as you have with Adaptation, uh, Tom, your your final thoughts on 2018's Mandy. Mandy is an entry in Nicolas Cage's filmography that I think will be talked about for years to come. I think it's already firmly been placed in the canon of Nicolas Cage classics. I think people do talk about it now with the same reverence as a Con Air or a, or a Face Off. It is a film that I would recommend. If, if you want to recommend it to someone, tell them to go in blind. I think knowing as little about it as possible because if you try to explain it to someone and try to make it make sense to someone, it's just kind of, it's going to get more and more confusing because it's, it can only work as a film as well. It, it couldn't work as a, as a novel, as a play. It, it's distinctly cinematic. The way it's edited, the way it's shot, uh, the way the music's incorporated, the way uh, the, the special effects are used. It, it's, it's a film through and through. And Nicolas Cage gave a speech, I can't remember what uh, festival it was, but he was given an award and he was talking about why he loves horror so much. And he thinks that horror gives storytellers much more room to do what they want. It lets them to lets them have a playground where normal rules don't apply because horror by its very nature is outlandish. It's sort of the, the red-headed stepchild of cinema. It's a genre that a lot of people look down upon. Yeah. But I think it's the best genre because I think you can do anything you want in it. You know, horror filmmakers aren't held to the same standards as other filmmakers. They're renegades, they're they're mavericks. They can they can make the craziest shit imaginable and it will find an audience because there's such a diverse collection of fans in 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 the horror scene. And Mandy is a modern horror classic. I think 10, 20, 30 years from now, we'll look back at it and go, man, Cage really knocked it out with a partner, that one. Man, that was, that was a great one. If, he never, if, if he'd have just retired after making Mandy, I don't think he'll ever retire. He'll probably die mid- shoot of a movie probably um <laughs> sure um but if he'd have retired on mandy and that was it I, I don't think anyone would have had an issue with that i don't think anyone would have questioned it because in many ways it's the high point of his career it feels like a culmination obviously the unbearable weight of massive talent is coming out soon and that feels like a like quite a literal culmination and i hope mandy's referenced in it but yeah, Mandy is a film that utilizes every single one of Cage's talents, his ability to be tender and vulnerable, his ability to be a crazed lunatic, and his ability to be focused, stone cold. He shows his full range of emotions here. 
And the film works because of him, because he is an actor that when crazy shit is going down and he's on screen, you're with him. And that's that's what makes Mandy work for me. And it's a film that I think you can rewatch again and again and again, notice new things, interpret things in new ways. Uh, it's a film that the first time I saw it, I thought it was good, but not great. But then it it really stuck with me and it grew on me. And uh, I realized more and more of why it's a masterpiece. And yeah, I think it's a work of genius. I, I think it is brilliant. And it's possibly, for me, possibly top five Nicolas Cage films. Definitely top 10, possibly top five, maybe even top three. I mean, as ever there, a, uh, a, a wonderful, wonderful summation. And I think there is definitely a top 10 argument uh certainly a top five argument for mandy as well and as you said i think this is a film that's only gonna um grow in scope and status as the years go on and we look back as um certainly if not just a horror classic then a classic in the pantheon of cage as well and i do certainly hope more people are able to find it because it is um such a unique and wonderful wonderful film and it's one that i dearly love as well one of my truly one of my favorite cage films but yeah i think on that point i think that's uh, a perfect tailing off point and ending point there uh so tom as you have done before as hopefully you will do again in whatever guise that may be i thank you for joining me on the journey to true cage nirvana uh, again for the listeners uh where can we find you on the socials and such if you follow me on Twitter at tbroomy, T-B-R-O-O-M-E-Y, and uh, there's everything on there. I've got a sub stack. I write for a, a few different places. Um, cur- currently uh, training at a new job at the moment, so I'm not as active as I'd like to be. But um, yeah, come, come and talk to me about horror movies, about action movies, or any old shit, really. Pro wrestling, mixed martial arts. I like a lot of things. So Twitter's the main place. wonderful as ever link in the description below so again thank you to tom brun jones for joining me on the journey to true cage nirvana the first person to do it in three consecutive years three consecutive decades history made again on the podcast and on that bombshell we end the episode there thank you for listening if you have been we'll see you in the next one but until then as always keep on keep on caging it's all you have to do thank you take care and goodbye